The business world has turned on its head over the last 18 months. Um, amongst the melee, amongst the, the crisis of Brexit and, uh, and COVID, uh, I've started asking the question, where are the opportunities? Where will the opportunities be? Uh, and I suspect there will be more opportunities that come out of this melee uh, than, than, than I've seen uh, in my lifetime. Uh, and, and I'd like to start to, to, to investigate that and, and to ask those questions. So why am I qualified to, um, to, to, to lead this debate? Um, well, um, I'm an entrepreneur, um, I'm an investor, I'm a coach, I'm a businessman. Um, I've started and scaled over 30 businesses, I've bought and sold businesses, um, made and lost money. I launched businesses on the stock market. I sold one for 10 times the float price. Um, I've led hostile takeovers successfully. So I think I've um, wear some of the battle scars and uh, and I'm qualified to, to, to ask the questions. But um, it's not really about me. Uh, what, what I've tried to do in this series and what I have done is uh, ask the same batch of, uh, of 10 questions to six very disparate uh, people who are involved in business. And they go right through the range from economists to billionaires to serial uh, business startup entrepreneurs to people that work in the arts um, who, who can see all the different angles um, about, uh, about business, really. Um, and what we're trying to ascertain is what does this kind of post- Brexit post-COVID world look like um, and how can we all benefit from it? So I look forward to meeting our six guests um, and asking them what the shape of things to come might look like in Business Britain 2.0. First up is Luke Johnson, um, who I spoke to last week. Uh, Luke is somebody who I've known for 30 years. He's somebody that I've uh, worked with uh, in four or five different businesses that have largely been uh, successful. He's an assertive character. Um, he's somebody that uh, is not frightened of swimming against the tide. We've agreed about things. We've disagreed about things. We've fought together, we've shouted at each other, we've made decisions together, um, but ultimately we've worked well together and um, I respect his opinions. He's uh, somebody who is controversial. Um, he's somebody who'll certainly uh, say what he thinks, uh, but ultimately um, you must make your own mind up and uh, draw your own conclusions. Luke, would you like to introduce yourself? I've been uh, an entrepreneur and investor for... Um more or ever since I've known Gary, so 30 years old, um, in mainly areas like um, hospitality and uh, retail, um, uh, principally in the UK. Um, and uh, I've been involved with businesses like, for example, Pizza Express, currently chairman of Gales, uh, also Brighton Peer Group, uh, and you know other businesses across uh, various sectors, including uh, a couple of businesses that uh, Gary himself has owned. And, and, and just to kick off, uh, question number one, as we're sort of putting it all behind us now, we've certainly put Brexit behind us, we're starting to get to grips with, with COVID. Uh, what opportunities and, and threats do you think this new world, this new economy uh, represents for the business sectors you're involved in? Well, I think there are a couple of 
general threats that I would identify. The first is an overpowerful government and the state interfering in our lives too much, I think. I'm afraid to say that uh, the pandemic has uh, empowered those um, in the civil service and in uh, public health and in uh, politics and so forth uh, from micromanaging the country. Uh, I'm a great believer in free markets and liberty generally, and the idea that personal responsibility and uh, the importance of controlling one's own destiny. And I think most entrepreneurs think like that. And so I, I generally suspect that many entrepreneurs have had a miserable time over the last 18 months, not just because, like many of us, you know, they've been fearful or had relatives perhaps who've suffered from this disease, but because they have felt their freedoms infringed and their inability to control their businesses and their livelihoods. The other thing I do worry about a lot is inflation. I think it's the genie's out of the bottle now globally, and uh, be it um, commodities or uh, wage rates uh, or asset inflation, when you have governments printing as much money as they are currently everywhere, more or less, but certainly in the West, in America, in Europe, in Britain, et cetera, um, it is going to lead to price increases, and that feeds on itself. And there are many uh, apparent experts who say this is a temporary phenomenon. I hope they're right. I'm not convinced they are. And so I am fearful of a uh, serious spiral in inflation. Uh, in terms of opportunities, I think short term, there are opportunities amongst uh, distress situations, companies that are struggling under too much debt or liabilities because of uh, lockdowns and COVID. Uh, and indeed, I have um, invested in uh, three businesses over the last nine months or so, arguably all of which have been opportunities because of uh, the lockdowns. Um, and we'll have to see how they go. Um, <clears throat> and I think there will be others, uh, either exhausted owners or companies going to bankruptcy and buying them out of that, uh, or companies that are unable to meet their obligations and therefore they want to uh, get some money off the table before you know they lose it to the bank or uh, the tax man or whoever it may be. Um, so I think short term are those opportunities. Longer term, um, clearly the you know quasi reinvention of certain aspects of society creates opportunities. So the whole working from home revolution uh, that will uh, make available opportunities for certain businesses. Um, you know, for example remote learning and teaching uh, is one example. Um, obviously, the overall growth of the digital economy in areas like e-commerce, uh, it, it seems to be a one-way bet that so that people will do more and more shopping online and less in physical stores. Um, so I, I see um, opportunities for entrepreneurs and investors in that sort of sector. Do you think, do you think Luke, that um, because we've had to cope with so much so quickly that there's been a sort of change in the speed of decision-making uh, and that, that you know, people have had to 
come to grips with what's happening in their own world very quickly and and make a decision and stick with it. Um, and I wonder whether that sort of speed of decision making is here to stay. I'm not sure. I don't actually think that people in terms of their fundamental behaviours and habits necessarily change that dramatically just because of one disaster like this. Um, I do think it's true, and I've seen it in a number of my own businesses, that we have been forced to change the model and uh, do things in a leaner fashion, uh, question costs in a way we didn't before, and um, good has come out of that. And, you, you know, we finally, suddenly found ways of doing things more cheaply, more efficiently, uh, that I think we would have been too lazy, uh, uh, too set in our ways to do beforehand. So I think that is one of the silver linings of the catastrophe of the last 18 years. I agree. Some of that medicine has been actually quite helpful for us, and it's made businesses more efficient. And it's surprising how many people have been able to hold on by their fingernails when they thought that they wouldn't be able to. So um, it's shown people's resolve. My, my next question, Luke, is really about, I suppose it's more led out of uh, the Brexit question rather than the COVID question, but it's about our trading relationship with uh, the rest of the world. Are we able to be a proud nation such as, say, Switzerland is, which seems to have managed its relationship with the EU quite well uh, whilst keeping its own um, independence? Uh, how will our relationship be with China? Will there be some blame uh, for this pandemic from, uh, from China and America? Uh, you talked about inflation, which I think is quite right, but inflation is a uh, problem that the whole world is facing. It's not just one country that's being disadvantaged. We're all in the same boat, as it were. One might even argue that a little bit of inflation in the system uh, kind of makes the debt seem a bit less uh, because it has less value, although interest rates are currently low. That may uh, may not continue forever. Um, but how do you see us uh, fitting in with the jigsaw of the rest of the world now? I think as ever, it's up to us. You know, we've got to be enterprising and um, we've got to have the confidence to take advantage of the opportunities now. We are not restricted, so to speak, in the way we were as regards trading with the rest of the world. Uh, now we're no longer in the EU. And so I think uh, we have to look in terms of different export markets and uh, different opportunities to import. Um, we have to be nimble and flexible in terms of our regulation and our taxation and things like that to make sure we remain highly competitive. Um, we have to somewhat reinvent the workforce because I think we were pretty dependent on um, EU expats living here, uh, quite a number of whom have now gone home. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have got to uh, change in terms of our mix of workers across, especially industries I'm familiar with, like hospitality. And, uh, you know, that involves better training and possibly higher wages and, you know, better working conditions in some cases. Uh, and, you know, that's all adding to the costs and the possibility of inflation in sectors like, you know, catering, for example. Um, and, you know, these changes and dislocations can be painful. Um, but ultimately, I think it's probably a good thing that we are less dependent on imported labour. Uh, I think it's right that we 
um, reach or some activities as well. I think the whole West is too dependent on China as, as the workshop of the world. Uh, at the very least, I think there should be less dependence on one country and, you know, a, a better spread of manufacture across the rest of Asia, for example, Asia and Indonesia and uh, um, you know, India and so forth. When, when you look at the portfolio businesses that you're involved in, Luke, I'm thinking perhaps of uh, the Brompton Bicycle Company, where you're exporting a lot. Do you see uh, more opportunities in, in Europe or because of the proximity? Or do you see uh, opportunities perhaps in America because they're more like us? Um, do you see yourself outsourcing some of your manufacturing to uh, some of the countries where it might be more efficient? Um, you know, we, 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 we've got a, got a big playground now, haven't we? Yeah, I think probably Europe as a percentage of our overall sales will diminish in the coming years. Not, I hope, because sales to, say, Germany or France or Holland fall, but because sales to, for example, America or Asia increase. And uh, Brompton exports to well over 40 countries, um, and that's the majority of our sales. And uh, I would like to think that, that the number of countries that we export to grow and that Many other countries, you know, Japan and Indonesia, for example, both of which are quite important to us, but I think have lots more potential, uh, it, it become even bigger destinations. And so I would say that, yes, I think while we were members of the EU, it, you know, it's a bit simple to see that trading block as always the dominant part of the world that you must do business with. And I don't think it has to be the case for many product categories. Uh, and I think we need to be more outgoing, more adventurous uh, and um, more entrepreneurial in terms of, you know, both uh, tangibles and invisible exports. The third question we may have started to, to talk about earlier on, which are really uh, what ongoing trends will emerge from uh, this post-pandemic experience? Uh, what are the things that you think are here to stay? We talked about some of the things that perhaps will be uh, temporary, a coping mechanism perhaps, uh, but there may be some trends that are that are here to stay. What do you think they might be? Well, as I said before, I think the shift towards at least hybrid working, so some of the week many more people will work from home, less commuting, I think is likely to be a permanent feature of most workplaces. Uh, I do worry that a sort of, heightened hypochondria stroke yeah, anxiety about health might become semi-permanent. And I think this is very harmful. I think, you know, if, if you care about our overall well-being, uh, you know, fretting about disease and death and one's health uh, too much of the time is itself bad for you. Uh, so I hope that doesn't happen. And I think there is a new relationship with uh, risk now as people are starting to come back to work. They're wondering about getting on public transport. They're worrying about going to the theatre. Uh, it's a choice. They can come out and they're not. And I'm seeing now, I think, people, there's a desire uh, to actually overcome that and, uh, and, and, and get back to normal. And I think long may it... Uh, continue but but the next question really is 
who will pay the bill? Uh, Sunday Times talked about it currently being about 370 billion uh, last last week, soon to be 400 billion. That's just a number. If you break it down into households, you know you're starting to see tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt per household now. Uh, you know which somebody's going to have to pay for us, our children, our grandchildren. It's a concern that nobody's really uh, addressed. Uh, I understand there are 14 million outstanding appointments uh, with the NHS now. And, you know, will the government encourage the job creators, the wealth creators, or will they punish the wealth creators, the, the business people? Who's going to pay the bill? Well, I, I think it refers back to things like interest rates. So essentially, we borrowed all that money. And... Um, if interest rates remain low, you know, we've got very long tenured gilts. We can pay it off over a very long period of time. And actually, inflation does depreciate away the net present value of debt. So, you know, we can afford it unless interest rates spiral upwards and then it becomes very costly. At the moment, as it happens, despite our higher stock of debt, because we now have over two trillion of total outstanding government debt interest as a percentage of, of government's overall outgoings is actually very low because interest rates are so low. Uh, but if they go up, everything changes. So I think the answer is we all pay for the, the uh, additional expenses incurred in the debt uh, over time as you know, taxpayers and citizens. Uh, it's affordable if interest rates remain at these uh, depressed levels. And are you concerned about the taxation of, of businesses, about corporation tax rises, capital gains tax rises, things that might punish entrepreneurs, which might in the long term make business less effective, um, create less jobs and ultimately find less money for the Treasury? I am always, yes. I think that ultimately, uh, you know, successful societies encourage entrepreneurship and risk takers to place bets. Um, invent things and thereby create jobs and uh, generate tax to you know pay for things like the NHS. Um, if you know entrepreneurs are rewarded less if um, they feel that there's more regulation, which there generally is over time, and that uh, taxes on business and on capital gains are going up, then they may be encouraged to emigrate, which has happened in the past to lower tax regions of the world or to simply not take risks and, and make investments and within reason the more uh, investments that entrepreneurs make in starting and growing businesses the more likely it is that we will have new businesses and new jobs created which you know are the bedrock of a prosperous and happy society because i think if people have no work then they're not happy and uh, you know they can't contribute to things like the NHS. And, uh, you know, we need a broad base of taxpayers to uh, spread the burden of the public sector and the cost thereof uh, in order to have a degree of balance. In some ways, we already depend too much in this country on the wealthy. You know, I think the figure is something like 29% of all income taxes paid by the top 1%. Uh, you know, and you might say that's all very well, but if, you know, a significant number of the 1% decided to leave, 
uh, then suddenly the tax rate uh, take would fall significantly and we would have shortcomings in our uh, um you know, public finances. No, I think you're right. A prosperous middle class is the answer. We've seen in my lifetime the wealthy getting more wealthy and the poorer relatively stretching further apart. So yeah, encouragement in that um, in that that middle class seems to me the answer. Let, let's move on to perhaps a more sinister question that we uh, asked earlier. Um, and and it, it's really about, I think, the government's relationship and trust with uh, business. Uh, and given these sort of forced vaccine uh, passports, a bit of a vault fast uh, there, and the sort of level of intervention and control that society has never seen before. Even two weekends ago, I went to the Hampton Court Flower Show, uh, which is mainly outdoor, and they weren't letting people in unless they could show evidence of both vaccines being, being injected. It, it does feel a little bit like one of those old German films, you know, papers, please, where are your papers? Uh, it concerns me, certainly, that that might be where we're heading uh, as a sort of government control. And I, I'm not a, you, you know, someone who generally, you know, thinks that everybody's out to get me. But it does seem like a sinister trend to me. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree. I think coercion to uh, have medical procedures is unconscionable. And uh, I think it's, you know, everyone's individual choice to make. Uh, I've had two vaccines and I think... You know, everyone who's an adult should probably have uh, two vaccines. Obviously, some people are unable to have them for health reasons. Um, so what about them? And uh, I don't necessarily agree at all with the idea that children should have them as it happens, because I think they're very low risk. And, you know, the side effects on the long term of these uh, vaccines are unknown, inevitably. Um, so I'm pro-vaccines, but I'm anti-coercion. I think uh, this is a new precedent that is... Uh, uh, a step too far. I think it's yet another move for government to interfere in aspects of our personal lives that is unprecedented, even in wartime. Nothing like this has happened before. I think it is morally wrong. And I think it's a disreputable government and parliament that looks to pass laws in favour of it. Uh, I think they're getting carried away drunk on power. And I think they must be resisted, person. I'm afraid I do agree with you. Let's uh, let's cheer up a bit. Let's look to the future. Um, my, my, my next question is really, what kind of entrepreneurs and business leaders will thrive um, in tomorrow's world? How will they differ from you and I, from these sort of white, middle-aged, uh, middle-class folk? Uh, you and I have been fighting for a long time for equality of opportunity for people coming into our businesses. How will that filter through? And uh, who do you think will be the, the sort of successful leaders of tomorrow? What qualities will they have? Well, as you've hinted at, I think they'll be much more diverse. So I think they will be uh, not just men, but women too. And I think from all sorts of different backgrounds. One of the more interesting things actually about entrepreneurs is that, um, you know, they have tended to come from different sections of society probably more entrepreneurs will actually be better educated than they used to be. Partly because, especially those who are building bigger businesses, you know, there is clearly um, a big element of many growth businesses these days that is tech focused. And I think inevitably, you know, technology requires, uh, you know, a degree at least of domain knowledge, uh, which means they're much more likely to be graduates. Uh, I think, you know, 
when we first started out in business on our own accounting in our 20s, which would have been going, going back to the 1980s, um, in those days, you know, I would say a fair proportion of entrepreneurs you met had not gone to university or anything. These days, I think it is a higher proportion of the more ambitious entrepreneurs that have, you know, um, attended higher education. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that, uh, you know, across all ethnic groups and religious backgrounds and uh, a, a, a diversity in every sense, that the desire for independence and freedom that entrepreneurship and running your own business can give you is there. Um, I think probably culturally it's seen as more of a cool thing to do than it used to be a few decades ago to run your own business. And um, there are more role models, which is a good thing. And inevitably, I think you're more likely to break through if you start earlier. So if you do start, say, in your 20s rather than your 30s or 40s, uh, I think, you know, you'll make mistakes, um, but you can afford to take risks. Uh, you've probably got less responsibility. So uh, you learn and you get better. And um, I think someone who's been at it for 10 years or 20 years is probably more likely to succeed than someone who's just started you know, on their own account and uh, has always worked for people before that. And, uh, you know, that can be a very difficult transition to make, uh, uh, referring back to the risk appetite and so forth. And therefore, the sooner you get going being your own boss, the better. Yes. If you can get going before you have children or a mortgage or those sorts of responsibilities, the worst thing that can happen is you pick yourself up dust yourself down and, and get a job with somebody else. One of the cultural changes I've noticed that's put me off certainly being involved in public companies is, uh, you know, when you and I first were floating businesses, it was a little bit like the Wild West and it needed certainly some regulation. Uh, I certainly felt that the pendulum has swung too far the other way now and there's a sort of quagmire of compliance and risk and regulation. And I wonder whether the people of tomorrow that are successful in business will have the sort of personalities and the patience to cope with that and navigate it and deal with it as part of their uh, DNA. I think a lot of that is simply, you know, the shifts over time and depending on when you're born, you're, you know, that's what you're used to and we're not used to it. So we're finding it difficult to adapt. Um, it, it may make it harder for uh, countries like Britain to be as enterprising and entrepreneurial as they have been over the decades. I hope not. I hope we continue to have as many startups and as much job creation and wealth creation as, as used to be the case. Obviously, you know, there is always a balance to be struck between, you know, freedom to trade and regulation. And, you know, people in many ways want protection, be it safety or otherwise. Uh, but if you inhibit entrepreneurs from uh, embracing risk and starting businesses and so forth, then uh, either they won't do it or they'll go elsewhere to do it. Yeah. The word on everybody's tongue at the moment is this remote working and is remote working here to stay. Uh, certainly in the businesses that I'm involved in, uh, there are questions about whether it's a drag on productivity uh, or whether it's a cost saving benefit. And I suspect 
But the answer to that comes in the way that we manage the people that are now working remotely, the new set of rules, how they deal with interferences, how they structure their day. Um, do you think it's going to be a, a benefit or a hindrance, Luke? Well, again, I can't but pretend I'm a bit old-fashioned uh, and therefore I like face-to-face. This is a Zoom call. I would have preferred an in-person interview because I think, particularly if it's just one-on-one, being in the room with someone, all the nuanced, non-verbal communication, the humour, uh, the rapport you get by being in the room with someone for anything that matters, be it a job interview or uh, closing a critical sale or pitching for money or whatever it is, it really matters to make the most of it. And I think Zoom and Teams and so forth exploit our laziness, uh, which is a bad thing. However, I fully accept that for a lot of people, the daily commute is an awful grind. They hate it. I don't blame them. It isn't very productive to you know spend two hours a day or more commuting. Um, I don't think personally people dislike offices or the people they work with, but they do dislike commuting. So if it's a balance of, you know, maybe three in and two at home, then perhaps that can work. I think it all depends on where people are in their career, what their home circumstances are like, the sort of job they do, uh, and the attitude of their bosses. And also, I think, it, uh, you know, there are new questions to be asked. The old expression, out of sight, out of mind. Do the people that are working from home get less opportunity than the people that are coming to the office? Because they're not considered. They're not remembered. They're not the people having a joke over the water cooler. They're not um, in, in your face the whole time. So I think it would be interesting to see how that, uh, that, that, that pans out. The next question I threw in, Luke, was perhaps one that I'm confused about myself, and that's really about the rising trend of cryptocurrency. Uh, we've seen Elon Musk toy with it. We've seen Amazon uh, deny it. Uh, is cryptocurrency going to be a worldwide opportunity? Is it going to be a way to stamp out exchange control issues, or is it the emperor's new clothes? Well, I can't pretend to be an expert. Uh, I do think that a lot of the activity in this sector is pure speculation at the moment. People like you or I who don't really know much about it, but think that it you know, might go up and therefore they can punt on it. Um, I think it's probably no bad thing that there are alternatives to uh, government single nation uh, currencies being explored. Uh, is it going to transform the way we all do business? I'm not sure it is, actually, no. Um, yeah, you know, I think more, far more fundamental are things like alternative forms of energy. I think that matters dramatically more to the future of the world. Your comments about um, alternative forms of energy, though, do feed into my next question, really, which is, never mind COVID, uh, will climate change finish us all off? We're starting to see floods, changes in world temperatures, huge you know, heat, degrees of heat in Australia, droughts. Uh, how can business contribute? How can we help? Well, what I would start by saying is there's always been floods and droughts and it's always been hot in Australia. Uh, you know, I'm not convinced that all the climate science is as settled as a lot of people like to claim. Obviously, the way in which government, or sorry, business can contribute to climate change is to help the transition through new technologies, new alternative forms of energy, uh, and, you know, investing in um, transitioning away from 
dirty forms of, of energy generation towards clean tech. Uh, and I think the more investment that goes on, probably the better. You know, it's not easy or simple, this conundrum. It's not simple. And even if we contribute, I'm not sure now we can do enough to turn the clock back. It might be that there's a, uh, a sense of momentum that, um, that, that is, is beyond us. Uh, and that leads into my last question, really, which is certainly we're seeing in many countries a decline in the birth rate as people are deciding not to have children. They're, not, they're deciding not to bring children into uh, into this world. Uh, you and I both decided to have a family, uh, chosen to have a family. Uh, what advice would you give to your children as they enter the business world? Uh, well, I think they should work for themselves, not for other people. Uh, I think they should, uh, you know, not be risk averse in their, you know, your career's a long time. It could be 40 years, could be 50 years. Uh, make the most of it and explore different fields, um, develop domain knowledge so that you understand what you're doing, work with partners, not all by yourself, um, enjoy the journey, uh, you know, focus on the product and service rather than I've just got to make a load of money because I think if you come up with innovative and high quality offerings on which you can make a profit, then you'll do very well as a byproduct, frankly. And it's a bit how the way jobs are created, you know, I've never known a business person say, I'm going to make my life's mission to build companies so I can create jobs. But the fact of the matter is, jobs are created as a byproduct of a successful business. And, um, you know, much good flows from the activities of entrepreneurs, new products, jobs, taxation, innovation, etc. cetera. And, um, you know, I think ultimately that's why I believe entrepreneurs are a public good is because, by starting businesses and growing them, they make the world, you know, wealthier and busier. And who doesn't want that? I think you're right. I think that's a good point to end on. Luke, thank you very much for your contribution. Thank this you. Um, thank you for talking to me. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you later. Thank you.